Check, check. David T. Miller, folks. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. Oh, it's Artcast, it's Artcast, it's Artcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen by your easel, maybe you can grab a chair. Or even take it with you like you ain't got no care. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. So sit back and relax and grab your headphones too. Adjust your volume, it's hotcast. Philip J. Mellon welcomes you. So sit back. Oh yeah, it's Artcast. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. Hey, and welcome to Otcast. Be sure to check out the artist's websites or otcast.com and check out the work and links. All right, let's get started. Judith Kruger on the program. Words of the day. Rain, actions, process, paradox, and touch. After making many trips throughout her artistic career to Japan, Judith Kruger has developed her very own thoughts on alchemy and how it's a fitting description for her very hands-on approach to art making. She also has some interesting takes on nature around her every day. Just listen as she describes rain as an action of nature. Also listen for why a metronome made its way into her process. And more. So now, let's welcome Judith to the episode. Judith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Cool. Where are you based out of? So I'm in Northwest Connecticut, almost to Massachusetts, near the Berkshires. Okay. Do you get to explore much out there? So, um, you know, I'm surrounded by nature and the environment is a big part of my work. So it's great. I also get into New York City very often pre-pandemic mostly, but I did start again. Um, you know, I coach and work with artists and do studio visits. So I'm all over the place. Yeah. yeah. And also yeah. teach all over the country, but right now that has stopped. So, um, so yeah, no, it's, it's uh, been a little too peaceful during pandemic, <laughs> but it's been good for the work. So. I was curious about your first experiences with art making and when do you feel like you got serious about it? Yeah, so in first grade, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and in, I don't know if it was second grade, first grade, second grade, um, I actually won a poster contest and was chosen for this program called the Tamashanner program that Andy Warhol went through and Philip Perlstein went through, where hundreds, I want to say a thousand little kids from the elementary school all packed into this auditorium in Carnegie Institute and we were um, given a piece of paper and a crayon box and a masonite board and a piece of wax paper. And we had to put our coat on our shoulders the same way and walk into our seats and listen every week to a man, Joseph Fitzpatrick, talk about um, look to see to remember. And every week was a lesson. And then we had to get back. We had to... Um, get asked back to come back the following year. And I went all the way through ninth grade and then moved to the Carnegie Mellon classes in from ninth to 12th grade. So it was sort of a pre-college but elementary school training. And so then went and got my BFA at Syracuse in 77, 1977. That's how, that's how old I am. And then um, was a practicing product designer for 
30 years where I drew and painted every day. However, it wasn't for fine art and then decided to go back to get my MFA after that in my 50s. And that was only in 2012. Oh. So more more than you bargained for. Right? <laughs> <laughs> During the process of making, you feel like you're affected more or the, or the work is affected more? Like what? Oh, like what's I that exchange like? Yeah, definitely the work. The work, um, my work is driven by material actions. And so I am setting up um, situations for matter to uh, transform like an alchemist. And so my painting practice comes out of that. And I um, have learned to not judge and just to see. So it's more of a ontological experience of seeing what happens. And as a result, an abstraction or an abstract painting or object is the byproduct of it. It starts with an idea, generally um, something from the environment or something that I've seen, some encounter or heard. And but then so that's a consciousness first. And then I kind of have to lose consciousness and let the material drive the work. And then I'd say at about 80 percent, I'm checking in again and seeing is this, you know, what I what I wanted to communicate. So, and then have to uh, finish it from there. A lot of the 80% work is destruction, where yeah. I look at it and it's too pretty. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's just like, oh my God, you know, I think we have a tendency to make things a little more usual or pretty or expected. And that's my 80% point. And sometimes I have to fool myself and say, okay, you're almost done. Now, now what are you going to do? because I want that to happen sooner. That's interesting. I think it kind of points to one of the questions I wanted to ask you is like, where does a painting begin? Like it's, it's source, so to speak. And I think you mentioned nature. Um, yeah, I want to say more environment than nature. And also when I say nature, it's not like a tree or a leaf or a rock. It's more so an action that happened or a, um, intervention that happened with the built environment. So for example, I love when I see a tree and then it has this red wire sticking out of it and wonder how it got there or something that has been weathered or decayed. Like I can find nature in a subway pole. So, you know, it's, it's some kind of unknown form of action that has happened as a result of nature's processes. And so I'm very interested in researching about that. And so my favorite thing is rain because I, I actually have read a lot about it, that there's a town in India that, um, that is known for their petrichor and that's the smell that happens when it rains. So when it rains in New York City, the petrichor is different than it would where I live. And then the strongest petrichor is in India where the um, land is very, very dry. And so after the drought season comes monsoons. And in this town, they're known for their perfume where they're bottling this petrichor. So I did a whole series on rain after that and made sure that the smells felt different and one looked more <laughs> urban. And so it can be just something like that where, you know, or something about the frailty of the environment. And, and that'll be enough to, you know, really they're surrogates for language. And so I don't want to say too much about it. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes when I ask questions to the artists, I'm like, I don't want to take, if that, if they rely on some sort of like a mystery or, or some kind of ambiguity, like I don't, I try not to take that away from uh, with my questions. <laughs> so Yeah, mine's big on ambiguity. Even for myself, I want there to be some kind of questioning. So that's my question to myself when I'm when I'm almost done. Is there enough in question? You know, we have a camera. We have lots of realists out there. You know, I think that abstraction opens up the dialogue for 
not knowing and for questioning and for kind of throwing you off in a quirky way. Yeah. Yeah. Next up are submitted questions by recent Otcast guests, Marvin Hoffman and Dina Hayden. Listen in. I've invited two of the previous guests from the podcast to come up with some questions for you. And cool. Yeah, I thought they'd have a nice perspective based on their work. And it just so happens that it's there's like this trio of podcasts that just came out like one after another. So it was kind of interesting so far this past couple of months. And you mentioned something about a subway pole and the, the artist Marvin Hoffman actually was wondering, does surfaces in the street or nature have an influence on you subconsciously? That's so interesting because I love I love his work. So because of his surfaces. So, um, you know, I often wonder how I get from A to B and I'm on time, which I usually am not um, because I focus too much on those little things, the minutiae, the visual minutiae. Um, and so it's not subconscious. <laughs> it's definitely, I'm out there. And um, so to the point where in grad school, I bought a magnifying uh, camera lens, a five time scientific magnifying camera lens and started taking pictures of things and loved that it's actually, it took them totally out of context. Like you can't even tell what these things started out. So I had this big abstraction in my thesis show that were big round 12 inch circles or five inch circles even. And it was just a little grate on the side of the painting building. And yeah. it had some paint spattered on it. And so, and it looked like these big streaks. And then I mounted it and started painting and responding to it. And so basically, and I have these pictures of, of rice that I put on some Japanese paper and shot from underneath. I'm actually working on this right now. And they look like big mountains, these little bits of rice. <laughs> and so that's really important to me, the kind of anonymity of um, the surface. And, you know, I don't just want to make a, a faux finished surface pattern. In some way, it has to be encroached upon or juxtaposed so that it kind of throws, throws something off. Or, you know, it's so magnificent when you're painting, as we all know, to see something wet or shiny, or, you know, it often doesn't dry as great as what we see. And so, you know, I want to try to convey as much as possible because I'm not using paint, you know, I'm making my paint. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of get this reticulation that happens that I want to suspend and somehow capture it from a particle view, um, just like I would, you know, seeing surfaces, odd surfaces in life. So there's the answer. Long answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Next artist that offered some questions is Dina Hayden, and she's wondering, within your work, what was the relationship you have with the surface of your canvases, as well as the relationship the materials have to the surface of your work? So um, the initial surface is really important, and what I don't know if you know is that I've been trained in Japan. I, I've been there probably over, I want to say about eight times in my life. And it was all within a, a very short period that I was going back and forth to, J to Japan working on uh, ceramic collections that I was developing. And so I learned a lot about Japanese papers and inks and um, their canvas is actually a very thick long weave paper called Kumo Hadamashi, which is uh, stands for cloud skin paper. And so that kind of got me started on all sorts of other papers from all different other cultures and what they can do. And so um, I have learned to treat paper to make it feel like sandpaper and make my own pastel-like paper to paint on and then treat linen and canvas as if it were paper and what to put on it. I put layers of um, Connecticut quartz that I get in the mines near my studio and I have a ball mill that crushes it and make a, I make a binder and et cetera. So all of my surfaces are prepped in a way that um, interesting things happen when the pigments are overlaid on top of it. 
did that answer your question? Yeah, I actually had <laughs> one more part to that too. Mm-hmm. And the last part of her question was, in how does light play a role within that? So I'm not aiming for light. And um, however, the pieces do contain a lot of light in some way, whether it be from me punching holes in the work and seeing something from underneath or um, putting silver leaf or a mirrored pigment underneath something and light comes through or even putting a metallic color on top of something dark. And really my purpose for that is because if I had my druthers or, or <laughs> left to no market value at all or anything, I would probably be making black paintings, totally black paintings. Pierre Soulange is, is, is my idol. And so um, I need there to be some juxtaposition, right? And so if I have a very dark graphite surface, by adding some gold to the top of that or metal or um, you know silver and then oxidizing it and then it turns green a little bit and then adding some copper and then putting cochineal on top of that, I'm going back and forth between light and dark, not just surface of pigments. I don't think of it as color. I think of okay. it really as, um, as light and dark, yeah. Well, that was actually, I was going to, I was trying to formulate a question about color and I had a difficult time trying to say what I wanted to say, but, um, you know, color and how does it play a role in your work? And then I was just thinking like, is it the star of the show or embedded like the rest of the elements in your work? Yeah. So I, I have a frustration kind of with color because I'm using natural pigments mostly, and I can't get these very, very bright colors. I can if I'm using, you know, really, really expensive um, azurite from Afghanistan or malachite from Egypt, let's say. And I do have some of that. And at the very beginning, I was taught, you know, put 20 layers of this on and it will glow and glisten. And there are, you know, are some very famous um, abstract painters or, you know, contemporary painters, I should say, um, that are um, from the Japanese lineage that do that. And I, I really wanted to break away from that. And what was important to me was the earthiness of of these materials, you know, I came out of ceramics design. And so it's, if something gets dark or I heat it and it gets very earthy, then I'm happier than something bright. With that said, I have these earth terrain, large prints that I'm working on a whole body of new work about the environment now. And I ordered a set of colored oil pencils, a big set of them. And I'm really enjoying actually juxtaposing little bits of lime green and pink and things like that within these, these terrains that I would not normally be able to achieve. So, uh, cool, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm actually enjoying a lot of drawing in my work from the pandemic after, you know, I, I only grabbed a few drawing tools when I had to come back home and my studio was open but they were refinishing the floor so they looked at it as a time to get things done in the building nobody was really here and so don't come in next week and then don't come in next week etc and so I started doing these little drawings I think I sent you a picture of one um, they were my little pandemic drawings where it was repetitive actions over and over and over and over again of pigment and it was very calming to the point where I actually went out and ordered a, I ordered on Amazon a metronome so that I could actually change the, the marks and the rhythm. And it was one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and one, two, one, two, one, two, and ended up doing about 18 of these drawings. And what's really interesting, I know I'm going off tangent, but they're black and white and gray, so they're not colorful. And, but they have to deal with um, the particles. And there are a lot of minute little visible particles in all my work. And I've realized that from doing these drawings. So that form is more important, the, the particle view of the world rather than the color view. Okay. 
And um, it sounds interesting. Like with the, you say you're using oil sticks or oil of uh, bars. No, or they're they're just colored pencils that are oil based versus wax based. Oh. Because I wanted to be able to. Um, my work does not need to be framed, the work on paper. I only do it sometimes lately if it's fragile. But um, built-up earth pigments and minerals um, just age beautifully over time, and they turn like stone, like, like rocks. Oh, wow. it, my surfaces look almost like ceramic surfaces. So if I'm going to put graphite or pencil on it, um, I want it to be archival and be able to stay there and be the finished product. I have a non-toxic studio practice, so I'm not using oil paints or solvents. And yeah. so um, I bought these oil pencils and uh, they can be permanent. They don't rub off. That sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. Now, so. I was curious, like some of the pigments that you use, I mean, they're all ground, I'm guessing. So um, the Japanese system is unlike any other that anyone knows about. It, the pigments are ground to like 13 different particle sizes, starting at a 3 all the way up to a 15. And so the 15 is finer ground. It's like baby powder. And that is the lighter the color. So if you start with a rock like malachite and you grind it, all the way up to a 15, it's a very light minty color. And if you get all the way down to um, the lower numbers, it's gonna be a dark green. So I can look at any Asian painting historically and tell you that's a number nine and that's number seven because they didn't have paint in art supply stores at that time. So using that system, um, I've learned what happens when I put a nine under a 15 and a three under this. And I also have a ball mill in my studio to crush certain minerals. So when I was in grad school, this was about 2010, I want to say, I got an email from a stranger in Seattle saying that his partner had passed away years ago. He was Japanese and he wanted to get rid of, he was moving to Mexico and he wanted to send every bit of the man's studio to someone who would appreciate and know what to do with it. Wow. And so I got these huge boxes. They came to Savannah with hun hundreds of big jars of real azurite and malachite and just all sorts of incredible things. And there was this white powder that I didn't know what it was. It was not the oyster shell that I did know what it was. It was granular. I had to send it to Japan to ask what it was. And I have since learned that it was quartz and there was calcite and there was pumice and all sorts of things that I never used before. And now they're a big part of my practice to the point where I make my own now. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. no. Coming from someone who uses acrylic, uh, I'm curious, like, is it, what's the binder or the medium you use to hold, say, create it into, like, do you create it into a paint or an ink or the, yeah, the ground? Yeah, so it's, it's actually a paint, and the binder is a hide glue binder. I have a hide glue binder. I also have deer glue, uh, cow glue, um, plant glues, etc. And so... There's a seaweed glue, and the different glues are for different reasons to mix. But the main one is called Nikawa, and it's a high glue. And you make it stronger if it's a coarser pigment and weaker. I would say that once in a while I have to put a one little drop of matte medium in or GAC 100 or something just if it's a really, really coarse thing and I'm putting it on, let's say, canvas. But on paper, I'm really sorry if I use any acrylic medium. I should just use a little, maybe a little rabbit skin glue is stronger, and it could be in my mix of deer glue. So, yeah. I, you know, it's, I'm a real alchemist, and um, it's, it's it, part of the painting that I enjoy the most, right. actually. Yeah. So, you know, I'm heating pigments to change their color, um, to darken them, and adding the glue to them and mixing them in bowls and heating it and and um, the whole process it's you know I guess likened to a ceramicist that has to wedge the clay first and it's my first interaction with making the work yeah. and so um, you know it, it requires a lot of 
um, preparation time, but it's also meditative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the most experimental thing you've done to a piece? Um, you know, I do now with my terrain works on paper, I did buy a soldering iron wood burning tool and I am burning holes into it. I did use some tar in grad school and tire shreds. Um, I have put it, I do often put it out in the rain and let the rain, um, uh, make the particles sort of separate. And then I have to bring the painting back in carrying it flat also. So that's tricky. And then, or let it dry and then carry it. And then I spray it with glue or I do that outside, spray it with, um, my hide glue so that it sticks it all down. Um, you know, I have left pieces of silver leafed paper, which I haven't done anything with yet, but that was last winter. I tacked them to the trees and let them oxidize. And now they've sort of made some unknown drawings that I'm going to respond to. I do have a plan to work with snow and ice this winter. Mm. I would like to embed some paper in the snow and work with some some uh, sumi ink and different inks that I've made. Um, so when you ask me about making inks, the difference is, is that, you know, the inks um, are made from indigo and they're made from plant material and they're water soluble, whereas the rock material, the inorganic material needs a binder for it to be dissolved. So I do make both actually. The plant material actually isn't as archival. So, you know, I've been taught to put it underneath the rock material rather than having it be the final um, top layer. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you consider like specifically or directly say background, middle ground, foreground, or is it some other like elements of say, I don't know if I want to call them formal or. So totally. I, I do do that. I try not to, um, the work is the least successful when I impose myself too much on it. But one of the one of my mantras for making my work is that there's a way back and that's usually my support showing. And then there's the middle and then there's the near. And it's very easy to make mud <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to, to make, um, not have luminescence and to uh, make dark things or to do the wrong thing and you mess up very easily with this. And then I just consider, well, that's just a ground. And now I need to bring something on top of that and something on top of that. And I, I don't know if you saw my um, on my website, my flat file project uh, where they're called terrain studies. So for 15 years, I actually was ripping up paintings, doing tests, sticking them in a flat file. And actually these flat files were in in my Chicago studio for years. Then they moved into storage in Savannah. Then they were um, in storage in my sister's basement in Connecticut. And then they moved to my um, studio here. And they're like overfilled at the seams of different pieces of things from different times and different material tests. And I'm now making lots and lots of work by cutting those up and joining them together. And it's called my flat file project with works on paper. So I'm on some online groups and I've recently posted some on the, in some shows that I'm in that are uh, online. And, um, you know, I wouldn't normally have those pieces. And it's really funny. Now I look at what they came from and I think they're great. And I know that I should not ever stop or cut up work again. So now I intentionally make these grounds to answer, get back to your question, make these grounds for a whole day and then take Mm -hmm. them out in the rain and let the rain and then put them in the drawer knowing that I have 12 of something now. And then I can respond to it and build on them just like they were an accident before or a mistake that I thought they were before. Now they're just the base for me to build the middle and the front on top of. Yeah. Yeah. Is it because you had a preconceived idea as to what you wanted to be and then the surprise came later to think, oh, I I can use this in something now that it's 
like just basically has its own life again. Yeah, I think that, you know, when I was first learning this, I thought a lot of things were mistakes or I only liked a portion of a painting. Um, you know, there was only one part that was successful and the rest of it got awful. And so I would cut out the parts that I liked. And yeah. so now I have the skill to do what I need to do with all these alchemic processes. Nothing is an accident. You know, I believe that if you gave 10 people the same materials as Jackson Pollock and a big canvas and you said, be Jackson Pollock, they would not be as astute and and, you know, and good as what he produced because of the learned wrist action and the empty spaces and the, all the different things that are taken into consideration along with chance. And, you know, chance can only be for a short period of time soon it gets to be educated chance and so you know I am I feel that I've mastered all of these experiments and I'm not happy until I do so you know I teach a lot and I tell people do, you know test it test it you know what do you want to do what you, you show me what in this this painting form resonates and I'll help you get there but you better do it over these exercises over and over again, because you can't just have this like sporadic painting practice where three work out and 20 don't. And so I, that's where I was at the beginning. Now I know that if I want to do some technique, a whole body of it, I can do that. I have a great big toolbox now understanding, you know, how to make paint in, in any format. You know, I coach a lot of even oil painters and, you know, I'm telling them about, you know, stick this in the oil paint and let's get some sawdust. And this is what happens when you use, you know, liquid mixed with this and that, because I've become a materials geek in a way. Mm -hmm. Looking at your work somehow, I was just curious if you have a spiritual practice or another activity that influences your work. So the, the work is the spiritual practice. The act of, of making the work is almost obsessive, as you know, many people, many of us are. And it's, it's something I have to do every day, and I get very cranky if I don't. And, um, <laughs> and so being, you know, the act of you know, making all of this stuff, I guess it's, it's, it's like cooking for me also. Um, you know, cooking is also relaxing. This is relaxing also, you know, with the news right now and what's going on in the world. You know, there are days when I spatter it and pour it and I'm more angsty and angry and that gets it out, obviously. And then there's other days when I sit and methodically make these little dots of, of something and then oxidize them and whatever. And, and I think I my biggest form of religion is being in nature and being and my studio is likened to being in the environment. I was wondering if there was one thing in the natural world that would represent your work or vice versa. And what would it be? Yeah. So getting back to rain, it would be rain. Um, I would think that most people would think, Oh, it's a rock. Oh, you know, um, well, there's two things. Sometimes when I teach, I pass around a leaf that's all pristine and then another one that's all weathered with holes and say, write about it. And you can write just a little bit about that pristine leaf, but you could write lots and lots and lots about the weathered one. And so a weathered leaf would express that, the destruction and the alchemy and the weathering. And then rain is an active form of nature where, you know, it, when it goes on the water, it makes these circles. And when it's on the pavement, it bounces off of a hard surface, et cetera. So I, I feel my practice is more active than a stationary object, a sedentary object. It would have to be an action um, like rain. And I was just wondering if you can use three to five words to describe your work. So I would have to say alchemic, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> uh, I would have to say visceral because I aim for that. 
and I would have to say uh, either deep would be another one or environmental. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say? What would I say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you saw that coming, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have uh, a couple here, or well, a few. Um, so I just thought of, I was trying to imagine your process, and I just thought about the word fuse, passage, layers, and touch. Nice, nice. I love the touch part. Yeah, it's just, I mean, of course, I saw that video that you have on YouTube as well. So it just, there's a lot of showing your process with, you know, your hands, your mixing and what have you. So mm-hmm. I just, and then sort of the person that doesn't really like to make a mess over here is wondering if you ever wear gloves or is that like impossible? Never, ever. And also I mix all of my color with my hands. Yeah. And so um, really get in there and mix it with my, my hands. That started with the Japanese process where they use their third finger. But because I'm making such a large amount of it in a big bowl, I'm using my whole hand now. And yeah. so, you know, sometimes I'm sorry. I can't do that with indigo. I do do that with indigo. And I'm sorry. It takes a week to get out, uh, you know, off of my hand. But no, I, nothing is toxic. Um, I don't use the reds. Um, because they contain mercury. So I do get, I go to Gera and get in, um, you know, the East Village and get synthetic reds. And I think they're made from aluminum instead of uh, mercury and or, or synthetic color. And, um, and so, yeah, no, I, I don't wear gloves. It's a no, no. Plus, I don't <laughs> like anything plastic, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I would love to do some work on on mylar or Yupo or whatever. And um, someone sent me some Terra skin paper, which uh, is made from stone, crushed stone. And won't I love it? And it still feels very plastic to me, even though I know that frosted mylar is made from crushed quartz, even. Oh. Um, but there's something about the um, more natural things. So putting on plastic gloves, eh, eh, that's like, no way. <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> so, yeah, I do urge my oil painters that I work with that they better. Um, you know, I've had a, a problem, a medical problem my whole life of hives on and off, and we never really found out what it was. And the only time I don't feel great is when I go into people's studios that are oil painters for a long period of time. So I could never really be an oil painter. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty strong stuff. The solvents and yeah, even all the mediums. You, it goes in your pores. People, I've been telling people to use lavender oil because I'm a big advocate for natural materials. So recently, um, one of the painters who's a good friend of mine said, oh my God, my whole house stinks in Brooklyn. Like, like lavender oil. <laughs> when I go to bed at night, I feel like I'm a big lavender. And it's so funny that, that um, you know, this is the thing that's supposed to take the place of the solvents. And then, you know, you're giving up one thing for another, but you're going to live longer this way. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which artist from history would you have liked to have spoken with? And what would you ask them and or want to talk about? Yeah, so I was torn with that because as, you know, like all of us, we all have our um, muses and uh, mine are definitely materialists. I love Sigmar Polk. And um, so he would be probably the top of my list, maybe Tapius or Fontana, but um, or Burry, Alberto Burry um, would be another, but it would be Sigmar Polk. And without a doubt, we would be talking about as material, two material geeks, um, you know, wh- what about this? And what about the amber? And how did you melt it? And how did you heat it? And what did you do with the resin? And, you know, all of that. And, you know, I'm using plant resins. And, you know, I went to a local farm here and got tree sap. And how's that different than the gamboge I get from Japan? And, you know, I mean, this is what I, a day doesn't go by that everyone says, when is your book? coming out. Yeah. I have so much written in my computer about mixing beer with ink and what happens when these two pigments go together and what happens if I heat it and you know all of that. So that's probably and you know there's some that are alive. Well, there's one that recently died. You know, I love Ed Moses for his 
um, experimental works. Uh, Sterling Ruby is a big fan. You know, I'm a big fan of his as well. You know, anyone who pushes matter, you know, who pushes material, you know, bleaches the linen and sticks it outside for a while. And then, you know, Fontana with the cuts and then what was underneath, you know, was there, you know, soaked muslin underneath so that it came through and, you know, all of that good stuff. You know, I, I, I'm never bored. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just all really driven by question and then that paradoxical moment. And, you know, we have so much paradox, you know, going on in our lives right now too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, some people would think it's it's busy work. You know, when I teach, I can tell by the third hour which people are never, ever going to do this ever again. You know, the ones that say, well, does this come in a tube? Or you mean I have to make this glue each time I want to paint? You know? yeah. And so um, I know those people are not coming back. But then there's others and that I talk to all over the world now who have the same kind of affliction. I'm calling it an affliction because, you know, it's 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 time consuming and it's frustrating, but it really brings back great rewards. So, yeah. Yeah, that was one of my questions actually. Um, but I think you answered some of it, but I was going to I was curious about one of the some of the challenges and and rewards of working with the materials you work with. The discoveries, you know, that's it. It's just this, I I love science. You know, chemistry was my favorite subject as a kid, and it's quite obvious, and it's the unknown. And, um, you know, the one thing I I do question all the time is, you know, I'm not really an environmental artist because environmental artists put their, set up their works in Petri dishes or are, you know, making their work out in the land. And those are, you know, environmentalists, et cetera. Is it enough that I am sort of stopping at abstract painting? And, you know, that's kind of more the dilemma of, of the problems that I see, not when I'm playing with materials, it's, you know, have I taken it far enough? Do I need to be you know, sticking my work outside and letting the rain and then having it be off the stretcher and, you know, not be a final product, more of an installation. And do I need to do more of that? That's more the issues that that come into my mind rather than um, problems with the work itself now, because I think I pretty much have an endless stream of uh, ideas and experiments and things that I need to do or experiments that have worked that now need bodies of work attached to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's my biggest problem is um, I fall in love from doing something and say, oh, the next one, I'm just doing this. Well, I didn't give the thing I'm doing enough time to make 10 of them or make six of them the next one's going to be different and different and different. However, um, there's definitely a visible thread now throughout everything. Yeah. Do you find that like the more works you accumulate, uh, it helps you see the, the original like start to the series a little bit better or. Oh, incredibly. Even the start to everything to the point where, you know, do I really make it a series? Because what I called inland outland in 2013 could be my terrain now, you know, and could be, you know, I'm doing a series now, zero is the beginning um, after the zero group um, in Germany. And, you know, they believe it's starting from nothing and and making work. There was a whole series of post-war artists in Italy and Germany and Japan that post-war were, you know, dealing with materials and, you know, I read about that a lot and I'm interested in it, but then I think, well, okay, so I'm cutting a hole in the work. Does that mean that these all need to have holes cut in them or, you know, oh, but I cut a hole back in 2014, you know, and so it's to the point where I don't even want to think about any of that. I'm thinking perhaps someday I should just uh, do my website by year (laughs) because, you know, I can't do it by medium because, 
there's not a single medium in any of this. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's paper on canvases and there's canvas on paper, you know, so uh, I can't say works on paper or or, you know, works on paintings. You know how paintings, I guess, just have this silent word that they are works on canvas versus paper and then right. works on paper, works on paper. I never understand that, but, but yeah, that's the way it is. So someone like me, like, Oh, well, which, which category do I put it in? So that's more of my dilemma, not, uh, you know, and I tend to work on like 20 things at once. So, um, I told you before we started that I have two studios. Now one is a clean studio, for putting, hanging things on the wall, contemplating what should be next if I'm done, uh, pulling it out of the room sometimes because a lot of times they're done when I don't think they are. I leave to go away for a few days, come back and look at it and think, oh my God, it's done. When I thought it was not done at all, you know, or I thought it was done and then I look at it and there's one glaring thing that's staring me in the face. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know how with abstraction also, if there's something so recognizable, I mean, I mean, you might have this also, you know, sometimes you don't want that thing. You know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But yeah. um, in open studios, people walk in. If three people are going to walk in and say, oh, look at the waterfall, or I see a cat, I know that I better get rid of that cat because <laughs> it shouldn't be there. But if one person comes in and says, I see a waterfall, I see a cat, the next person sees a figure, then I know I'm successful because um, I threw everybody off. I don't see any of those things, but if everybody sees something different, then I did a good job. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to kind of obscure it if it's... Otherwise, you know, not to let it be precious or that one right. area. Yeah. Right, right, right. I, I sometimes get this like masterpiece in the middle of something done chemically or however it's done. And that that's like a precious area. And the whole painting has to get done around this little thing that just doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> and I, it can't it just can't happen. And then. One day I'll walk in and just cover it. Oh my God, I got rid of my baby, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, you have to look at the whole picture. It's like the first, first line of a novel has to sometimes change after the fourth chapter, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's funny what we, the thing, the normal people in life, um, who don't do what we do would have no idea of what, how something gets made and the angst and the, the hours and the the toiling <laughs> yeah yeah. And, yeah i mean it's amazing even the joy the joy too yeah yeah we can't forget that right. it's funny so how you said not, normal <laughs> yeah right normal i you know i call them muggles in the you know in harry potter the people without the, the special powers the, <laughs> the regular people are the are the muggles <laughs> the people that um that you know that don't speak our 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 weird jargon <laughs> So, yeah. So I had one more question, and you know, then we can, you can read the manifesto too if you'd like. Oh, okay. I was just curious if you had a quote that you'd like to share. I do. One second. I actually, uh, I, I would never just pick one. I have two. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Okay. So one is um, Matisse. Whoever wishes to devote himself to painting should begin by cutting out his own tongue. So I believe that, you know, wow. we can talk, talk, talk all we want. And um, really, it's a, a good painting doesn't need words. And yeah. especially an abstract painting does not need words. Um, and then uh, Paulus Berenson, if no one knows of him, look him up and see the movie To Spring with the Hand. So To Spring from the Hand, I show this when I teach. And he says, it's not a way of making a living. It's a way of making a life. Yeah. And um, he's actually a ceramicist and journal maker, et cetera, who taught at Penland. And uh, when I taught at Penland last summer, it was highly recommended that I see this. I loved it so much that I bought it and have seen it over and over. So, yeah, um, it, it really is a life. It's it's not yeah. it's not work. You know, when we say. Well, I'm working today and regular people say working again you're always working well it's not work I mean it, it's 
it's the kind of work we should have, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't be called work, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> So it'd be great if you could read uh, your recently published on your uh, website, your manifesto, the Alchemist Manifesto. Yeah. yeah, so I added this because I everyone's always saying, you're such an alchemist, you're such an alchemist. And then I, I had to think to myself, well, what's an alchemist? How does that not turning lead to gold, you know? So I, I wrote this, Alchemist Painter's Manifesto. The work should evolve through acts of matter investigation. Matter investigation must involve alchemy. Alchemy is invention. Alchemy is destruction. The alchemist must become schooled in the process. Alchemic rituals, if worthy, must become rote. True alchemy exists effortlessly. An alchemic work of art needs no verbal explanation. Like nature, it deserves to be felt. An alchemist's work is never finished. That's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Big thanks to Judith Kruger for sharing so much about her process. Do check out her website, judithkruger.com, for more of her work and some mentioned during the interview, such as her terrain studies and terrain paintings. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Oddcast. I'm your host, Philip J. Mellon. Thanks for listening. And keep the dialogue going. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me ask you this. Define abstract art. Oh, come on. Okay, here's a better one. What does this painting mean? I'm getting nowhere with this. Forget it. Podcast home is a h t c a s t dot com. Thanks again. Sounds like the party's over, but you can still stay connected. Podcast audio is on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher, and now on Google Podcasts. Otcast Social on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Let's not forget about Instagram. Thanks for tuning in.